Johnny Erickson Tata, who you may remember as the founder and CEO of Johnny and Friends, has written extensively on various aspects of the Christian living from a perspective of a quadriplegic. For those who do not know, she has been paralyzed from the neck down since she was about 17 years of age, and she's now around the age of 72. She actually grew up in the Baltimore area, and it was an injury that she sustained diving into the Chesapeake that left her paralyzed. She has communicated openly about depression and discouragement that she endured, as well as the joy of the Lord in the midst of her suffering. If you're not familiar with her ministry, um, I uh, encourage you to, uh, to get familiar, because you might find encouragement there. Recently, she wrote a brief article entitled Paralyzed and Blessed for the Desiring God Ministries Online. The opening paragraphs of her article bear a very insightful perspective. The following is an extended quote from that introduction. When pain jerks me awake at night, I first glance up. If the digital display on the ceiling says the only sec... If the digital display on the ceiling says only the second watch of the night, I push through the pain and try to breathe my way back to sleep. But if the clock says 4 a.m., I smile. Jesus has awakened me to enjoy communion with him, even though it'll be hours before I sit up in my wheelchair. Do I need more sleep? Of course. Will my pain subside? Unlikely. But at 4 in the morning, there is a more necessary thing. And it makes me happy to think that long before dawn, I am among the early ones who are blessing Jesus, filling my chest with Jesus, rehearsing his scriptures, murmuring his names, and whisper singing hymns that cascade one into another, all filled with adoration. It's hard to do that when you're wearing an external ventilator. And so I wordlessly plead that he utter unearth my sin. Fill all my cavernous, empty places and show me more of his splendor. He always responds with tenderness. He sees me lying in bed paralyzed and propped with pillows, encumbered by a lymphatic sleeve, wheezing air tubes, a urine bag, and hospital railings that, quote, hold it all together. One of my helpers knows all about these nighttime rendezvous with Jesus and so one night after she tucked me in, she stood over my paralyzed frame with an open Bible. This is you, she said, and then read Psalm 119, 147, and 148, which says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. That pretty much describes it. In the morning, when a different helper draws the drapes, unhooks my ventilator, drops the guardrails, removes the lymph sleeve, and pulls out my many pillows, she usually asks, sleep well? Not the best, but I am so happy. End quote. I think Johnny Erickson Tata has ample reason to complain, much more than most. But instead of complaining, she uses the time that she has to seek to honor Christ. Instead of focusing on what she doesn't have, she set her mind on what she can do. She prays and sings. And she looks for opportunities to give glory to Christ before those around her. How do you fare in those dark nights? 
How do you fare in those early morning hours when you awake troubled, perhaps in physical pain or otherwise discouraged? Where do your thoughts linger when you are suffering? I think that we get a glimpse into what is truly in our hearts when we are in those times that are often referred to as the dark night of the soul. Those seasons of suffering, uncertainty, intense trial. How do you find joy in the midst of the most dire of circumstances? That's really the question. Well, as we come to the next section in our study in the letter of Philippians, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart in the midst of suffering. The immediate cause of his suffering is not a physical ailment, though some have speculated that the thorn in the flesh that he refers to in the letter of Corinth was actually some physical ailment that stuck with him for the remainder of his life. But rather, the immediate cause for his suffering in the context of this letter is prison. I've mentioned before, Paul writes this letter and many other letters from prison. All this talk of love and joy that we've discussed over the past couple messages in this letter were all written in the context of Paul being a condemned man, a falsely condemned man, a man made to dwell in prison for the simple reason that he preached the gospel. That his imprisonment is for the gospel is underscored in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says that his imprisonment is for Christ. And also in 1, verse 16, when he says that he was put there in prison for the defense of the gospel. Open again to Philippians chapter 1, if you haven't. I'll read verses 12 through 26. That's the next major section. There, Paul is essentially giving a ministry report and sharing with the church his pathway to joy in the midst of suffering. In verses 12 through 18, we see him rejoice in the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, that the gospel is continuing to go forth in spite of and because of his circumstances. And at the end, in verses 18 through 26, we'll see him rejoice in the focus of the gospel. The focus of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. Every preacher of the gospel endeavors to honor Christ with their life and desires to see the end result of their ministry is that others also desire to honor Christ with their life. That'll be the outline for this section. Those two points, rejoice in the furtherance of the gospel and also rejoice in the focus of the gospel. We only get to the first point this morning in verses 12 through 18, really the first part of 18. Let's read together that whole section, 12 through 26, Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let us pray. Our Father, once again we come before you with grateful hearts, grateful for Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Commander-in-Chief, our friend, grateful for your word, which sanctifies us. Your word is truth. Grateful that we can open up your word once again and learn from your people, from those who you particularly set apart, such as Paul, to serve us in this way, to be your conduit to... um, See that your word goes forth, your authoritative word goes forth. We're learning from him as we hear from him, as we hear this letter that was originally written to the church at Philippi. We're learning from him and we're hearing your word in our ears, and we are grateful for that. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's blessed name, amen. Well, again, let's look at that first section. Again, Paul says that he finds joy knowing that the gospel is going forth in spite of his circumstances. That's again in verses 12 through 18, which I just read. Well, looking at verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers. Remember, again, this was a letter that was written from Paul to a group who had become very dear to him. They had become very dear to him. They had taken special interest in the gospel ministry that Paul was given. This ministry had greatly impacted their lives, and so they were eager to participate in the ministry with and through Paul. So they shared with him in the ministry. The fact that they shared with him in the ministry, that they participated in his ministry, was also a point of encouragement and joy for Paul, as we saw last week, where Paul said, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And again, how would you like to be the subject of that verse? Right? Someone thinks about you and your participation in gospel ministry with them. They think about how you serve with them, how you love on them, how you connect with them, how you stay connected with them, how you reach out to them, how you are concerned for their everyday welfare. And they thank God for you. You become a source of joy for someone else when you have that kind of relationship with them. And really, that's the kind of relationship that we all should have with one another in the body of Christ. Again, they were his ministry partners. To underscore this, the church even sent one of their own number, Epaphroditus, to take their most recent gift to Paul. They didn't just send it to him somewhere by some anonymous Person, But they sent one of their own to take this gift to make sure that Paul knew of their care and their love for him. Thus, of course, he was more than eager to keep them updated to know how things were going in the ministry. He says again, I want you to know, brothers, 
This was a personal letter. These were his brothers. I don't take this as a formal address to them as Christians, even though it could have been. I think this was more of a familial tone. You are my brothers, and I want you to know how things are going with me. It is significant that Paul is eager to talk about what is happening in his life. This letter, in that respect, is more akin to a missionary update letter that we might receive from those whom we're supporting on the field. Nevertheless, we also understand what it's like to want to let people know how we're doing. People who, we, who know us and who are invested in our lives. However, as we will see, he doesn't use this opportunity to complain. In fact, he's going to say in chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, do everything without complaining, either to yourself or amongst yourselves. And Paul really models that here. Much of what we do nowadays by way of giving updates on our lives is just that. It's complaining. I've said this before, but we've made an art form out of it. Just about every social media platform is kind of designed for that. We voice our opinions on world events. We malign those we disagree with or just complain about how awful our day has been. We stub our toe and have to let people know about it. We get cut off in traffic and have to let people know about it. We go to one of the many abundant restaurants to satisfy just about any cuisine craving that we have, using money that we have in abundance to be able to do that, to be able to go out and have somebody else cook for us. And if the food comes back the slightest bit to our disliking, undercooked, overcooked, or if the service was off, we hop onto social media to let our followers know about it. Now, I, for one, cannot stand when my burger is undercooked. It kind of drives me crazy. I do send it back. I ask them to put it back on the grill for a little while longer. I know some people still like to hear the cow mooing in their, their beef, but that's not me. I've been convicted as of late that there's something not quite right with this picture, though. I certainly do believe that there's something not quite right about people who uh, eat their burgers rare. No, no offense intended for me out there. But, um, but beyond that, there's something not quite right about this sense of entitlement that we have that we should actually complain about such a thing. That we would actually go as far as to post our, comp- our, our complaint about such a thing on social media for others to weep over it with us. These kinds of things pass for suffering in our day. And if we're honest, we know that the kind of responses we tend to get are those that fuel our bitterness and complaining rather than build us up. People tend to sympathize and coddle us in our complaint instead of reminding us of what is true. They affirm us in our bitterness over some minor inconvenience, and it usually just encourages us to complain all the more. Meanwhile, I bet Johnny Erickson Tata would love to be able to walk somewhere on her own strength, on her own two feet, and stub her little toe on the way. I bet the people of the Ukraine would love to go about their day as normal and have someone besides a two-ton military vehicle cut them off. And I bet that Paul would have loved to be able to meet with his friends in their favorite restaurant to give them a personal update about his ministry, even over a slightly undercooked burger, instead of sitting in a cold prison eating whatever it was that they gave him to eat. The fact is that we should all be doing all things without grumbling or disputing. And that Paul will say again in chapter 2, in order to show ourselves to be, as he says, blameless and innocent children, children of God that is, 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we should appear as lights in the world. Did you get that? He says, when we do all things without grumbling or complaining, then we show ourselves to be children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, a crooked and perverse generation that knows nothing but complaining and grumbling and attitudes. And any time something doesn't go their way, they let people know about it. And I mean, really, that's the American way. But that should not be our way. Paul says we should be different. I wonder how you're doing with that. How are you doing with that command to do all things without grumbling or disputing? Back to our text, Paul could have complained, but he did not. And as he had the opportunity to share of his progress with his friends by way of letter, he sought to make good use of that opportunity. So he says again, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You may be thinking, wait, shouldn't we be hearing about the nitty-gritty details of prison life? I mean, even if he doesn't complain, shouldn't we be hearing specifically and exactly what he does to pass the time? He's supposed to be giving a report back of his circumstances. But again, Paul wants to make good use of his time. And what's more important to talk about than the gospel? The key to having joy in the midst of such dire circumstances, in other words, is to stop thinking about all the ways you have been wronged, all the ways you've been disappointed, all the ways you've lost out on something, and instead to consider how your circumstance will help to further the gospel. Paul is going to talk later in chapter 4 of this letter about how we deal with anxiety. One of the main things that he encourages them to do is to take care with how they think. I've said this before, but how we think is one of the most significant battles that we'll fight, fight, fight in the Christian life. Paul reminds us in that section to think on what is true. Now that requires effort. It requires energy. It requires you to intentionally stop thinking about the things that make you anxious and to replace those thoughts with other things, things that are good and right and true. Again, Paul models that for us here. He could complain about how dark it gets in prison, how discouraging it can be to be alone, separated from those whom he loves, imprisoned for the very gospel he's about to highlight, imprisoned for doing precisely what Jesus commissioned him to do, but he doesn't. He chooses instead to think on something that is good and right and true. In the first part of this chapter, he modeled it by thinking about his friends and rejoicing in his friends and the relationship he has with them. And now he turns his attention to the gospel. More particularly, he's choosing to think about how his personal circumstances help to further the gospel. And I think he sees that happening in two ways. First, he was able to share the gospel with those closest to him who did not know it. Look at verse 13. There he says again, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, his imprisonment was for Christ. It was for Christ's sake. He, he was called to this end. He was called to preach the gospel as well as to suffer for Christ's sake. And this is the message that he shared with his captors. Certainly, we are all called to gospel ministry. I read Matthew 28. To all of his apostles, this message was given to make disciples of all nations and really to all of us 
through them, we are given that same command, that same charge to make disciples of all nations, to be about furthering the gospel by making disciples, by both baptizing and teaching. That's the whole ministry of the church. Preaching the gospel so that people hear and believe and so that we baptize them and they come into the church. And once they're a part of the church, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's the rest of the ministry, the gospel ministry to which we are all called. Paul was particularly called to preach the gospel and to suffer. Concerning his calling, this is what Jesus said of Paul in Acts chapter 9 when Ananias was sent to commission Paul. The Lord said to Ananias, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was a chosen instrument. He was set apart as an apostle. The Lord made that clear even before Paul was commissioned. And when Paul spoke of his own ministry in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Paul is is leaving the church of Ephesus. He says, this is the last time I'm going to see your face. And so these are some of his parting words with them. He says, this is the last time I'm going to see your face. And I know that when I go on my way to Jerusalem, chains await me. He also had a special relationship with the church at Ephesus. And so there was a lot of weeping and a lot of tears as he parted with them, and especially knowing that he was going to face imprisonment. But Paul said, you know what? It's okay. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He said, my life means nothing. The most important thing is the gospel and this ministry that Christ has given me to preach the gospel. That's what I'm going to do regardless of what it costs. Paul knew that he was called to suffer. He knew that he would face affliction for the sake of Christ, but he continued to go forth because he was also called to preach the gospel. And he did not consider his life of more value than the gospel. To say it another way, to Paul, the gospel, the ministry of the gospel to which he was called was more important than his own circumstances. So again, when it came time for him to be imprisoned for the cause of the gospel, he did not see that as a setback. He saw that as an opportunity to further the gospel. And instead of complaining about what happened, he took advantage of the opportunity and simply preached the gospel to those who were around him, to the very people he was chained to. The imperial guard got an earful from Paul. He said, look, guys, I'm not here as some petty criminal. I'm not some thief or murderer. I'm here preaching about Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I can imagine them saying, what? Why, why on earth would you be in prison for preaching about some dead guy? Why would you give allegiance to a dead guy, especially if it would land you into prison? I believe that Caesar is Lord. I give my allegiance to him, and I have all the benefits of the kingdom of Caesar. I have all that I ever need, and I'll never be in prison for following Caesar. Why would you follow this Jesus character? To that, Paul would say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. And Paul would share with them. 
he would probably start with his own calling. As one who had a pretty good job as a rabbi, one had previously persecuted Christians when this sect of Jesus followers started getting out of hand. He would tell them how he traveled on the road to Damascus in order to further persecute these Christians. Then he would tell them how he encountered Jesus. How he was blinded from the experience for a time. But how the Lord Jesus opened his eyes to see that righteousness only comes through faith in him. I mentioned in my prayer earlier that I attended a brief conference yesterday put on by Garden City and One Hope Ministries in Baltimore City. One of the speakers suggested that it is likely that there's a significant number of churched people. And when I say church people, I mean people who either have attended church in the past and no longer go, or they go to church and maybe they're not actually true believers. But there's a significant number of church people who have no idea that righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. Like those imperial guardsmen, there are many who view their relationship with God as a contract. I do my part, he does his. I work. Perhaps I give my offerings. I wait some tables at the church functions. I show up on Sunday mornings or at least special holidays, right? (laughs) Certainly God will do his part to keep my bank account large, to help me have good friends to help me have a stable work environment, to help me have a nice home, to keep me and my family safe from illness. And whether we actually admit this or not, we probably expect for God to keep us and our loved ones from dying, ever. We see that expectation usually when someone's loved one does die and the way they respond. At any rate, we do our part and he does his part. We get from him because we give to him. We are right in his eyes when we do a good job, and we have done enough of a good job over the course of our lives so that he should continue to do good things for us. We're not like those others, those crazy people who invade others' countries, who strap bombs on their chests and blow up buildings, or people who shoot up high schools. We're not like them. We're better than them. So surely God's going to continue to do good things for us, right? Of course, if he ever fails to do good for them, then either they reckon that God is broken, not powerful enough, maybe he's not actually God, not actually able to do anything for them, so they're justified in turning away from them. That's why so many people fall away after they go through major trials and difficulties, because they never really believed or trusted in him. They trusted in what he did, what they felt like he did for them when they did good. And for those folks, there's always that air of uncertainty. Have I done good enough? Will I do good enough to stay in his favor? These are those who think that righteousness, being right with God, is based on their works. To the contrary, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, I want to make it clear. And I think he would have emphasized this point to those imperial guardsmen as well. That we will never be good enough 
to earn God's favor. That all the good we could do in the world will never be enough to wipe out the wickedness that we've done. James says that if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of all. Think about it. If you speed down the road, it's 25 miles an hour out there. Technically, if you go 26 miles an hour, you have exceeded the speed limit. You've broken the law. Technically, that's true. I know that generally cops don't pull you over for going 26. They might pull you over and tell you you need to speed up. But if you go, you exceed the speed limit, then you've broken the law. And therefore, if you get pulled over and you are given a ticket, the police officer is well within their right and responsibility to give you the penalty because you've broken the law. It doesn't matter how many times you go 25 after that. It doesn't matter if you're on a long trip and you have a, a, a section of the road where you go 25 and then just for a few minutes you go 26 and nobody really notices, you still broke the law. So if you break the law at one point, you're guilty, you deserve the penalty, period. If you broke any of God's law, any one of them, just a single one, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever coveted someone else's goods? Have you ever lusted after someone else or something else that is not yours? If you break any part of God's law, you're guilty, period. And you deserve the consequence. We are all condemned people apart from Christ. That's the point. And so you cannot be good enough to enter God's heaven, ever. You will never be justified on your own strength. The only way we can be good enough is if we're trusting in the righteousness of another. If we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's ever kept the full and complete law of God. Jesus is the only one who's ever satisfied his father. Everything the father asked him to do, he did without hesitation and with joy. Even obedience unto the cross. Paul's going to say that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus obeyed even to the point of the cross. And because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, when we put our faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, when we look to Jesus as our Savior, God credits righteousness to our account. The righteousness of Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We have no righteousness of our own. We're only guilty people. We need the righteousness of Christ. Paul's going to talk again extensively in Philippians chapter 3 about the righteousness of God. He says there that he desires more than anything else, to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law or from his own works, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. The righteousness of God depends on faith. There is no other way to have the righteousness of God, to be right in God's eyes, but by faith in Jesus Christ and in faith in him alone. If you didn't know that before, this is the only way. That is the gospel, beloved. 
That is the gospel by which we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, again in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Back to our text, Paul took advantage of his circumstances not to complain, not to grow bitter, to wallow in self-pity, or to reach out for the pity of others because things were not going his way, but rather he viewed this as an opportunity to further the gospel by simply sharing with those around him and the imperial guard, each and every one of them got an earful of the gospel from Paul. Moving on, as we think about how the gospel went forth in spite of his circumstances, not only was Paul able to share with those closest to him who did not know the gospel, but he also considered how his imprisonment was used to inspire others to preach the gospel. Look back at verse 14 in the text. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul and his imprisonment was an inspiration to others. It was an inspiration, really, to two different kinds of people. On the one hand, you had the believer who was inspired and emboldened to preach Christ, having seen Paul's example and commitment to the gospel. They did so, he says, out of goodwill, out of love. They knew that he was called to preach Christ. Perhaps they had a similar calling, though they were not necessarily apostles. Again, we know that Matthew 28 applies to all of us. They were convinced of the same. Regardless, Paul's imprisonment encouraged them and inspired them to press on to preach just the same, no matter the circumstances. I would imagine this is the kind of encouragement that the people of Ukraine, the fires of Ukraine, got when their president, who faced war and almost certain defeat before the invasion began, when he was encouraged to leave Ukraine and to save himself, he says, you know what? I need ammunition, not a ride. You better believe a large part of the reason why the Ukrainian resistance has lasted for so long is because they were inspired by their commander-in-chief and by his words there. But there was another kind of person who, ins who was inspired by Paul. This one also preached Christ, but they did so out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, he says. Now, it's not exactly clear what's meant by these things. There isn't necessarily a certain kind of preaching noted, though he is going to get into some discussion of who this type of person is later on in chapter 3. Suffice it to say here that Paul's concern was more with their motives with regards to him. They were envious, selfishly ambitious. They wanted to have the kind of name that Paul has. They likely were trying to steal the spotlight from Paul and perhaps to rub it in his face when they could because he was in prison and they were not. He says they were looking to afflict him in his imprisonment. You know those kinds of people, the kind that would just as soon kick you while you were down? The I told you sowers. You're hurting and they find it easy and necessary to hurl additional insults at you or to pick at your decision, suggesting perhaps that you're the reason why you're in this trouble to begin with. Last week we talked about being the right kind of friend. Those are not the kinds of people you want to be your friends. They don't build you up. They only tear you down. You need to stay far away from those kinds of people. 
We know those kinds of people, but again, how does Paul respond? He responds by thinking through how his difficult circumstances are able to further the gospel. Because that's really the most important thing in life. Not his own comfort, not being right in the eyes of naysayers, but rather the gospel. Back at verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I said before, but this text really gives us a glimpse into the heart of Paul. He said, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter why they preach Christ or how. It just matters that they preach Christ. The gospel is going forward. Even if I'm not the one moving it forward, I know that in spite of my circumstances, it is going forward. And in this, I rejoice. I wonder, do you believe that the gospel is necessary and more important than the circumstances you find yourself in in life? I mean, it really doesn't matter what kind of trial you face, what kind of difficulty. Most of us will not face imprisonment for the cause of Christ, but we will all face difficulty. We will all suffer trials. Peter says not to be surprised when a fiery trial comes among you. When you go through trials, do you consider how your circumstances may further the gospel? If not, Paul's example in teaching here compels us to understand that we should, and that this is, in fact, the pathway to joy in the midst of those difficult times. Your trials are not just about you. If you are a Christian, God has greater purposes for your trials than just you. Perhaps you're not a missionary, you're not the Apostle Paul, but you are a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. Again, your life is as intimately associated with the gospel as Paul's is. We are all called to be disciple makers. Consider who you can tell about Jesus in the midst of your suffering. Again, what trial are you going through and who has the Lord brought into your life whom you can tell about Jesus as a result? Think about that. Give that serious thought and prayer. Someone around you needs to know why you live life the way you do. Why you talk about joy in the midst of your trial. Why you talk about and think about going to church even when you don't feel like it. Why you bother to reach out to others when you're suffering when you should be cared for But instead, you're reaching out to others to encourage them. Someone needs to hear the gospel truth that sustains you. The fact of the matter is, the more you turn your attention to the gospel in the midst of your difficult circumstances, really, the less time you'll have to complain, the more you'll see God at work, and the more you can, as Paul, rejoice in the midst of your suffering. Remember my definition of joy, delighting in God and in the things of God. God and his works are not dependent upon my circumstances. The gospel, as it is the power of God to save those who believe, is not dependent on my circumstances. If I see my life calling as a Christian involving disciple-making, and if I truly delight in God and in the things of God, I must see the gospel as more important than my circumstances. I want you to get that. I may not be able to change my circumstances at any given moment, but I can, like Paul, look for ways to continue to further the gospel in spite of them. Again, consider who you can tell about the gospel in the midst of your pain. And listen, consider who is watching you who can learn from your example. Perhaps there's someone who needs to see you living out your faith in the midst of your pain. Someone is always watching you. That's always going to be true. Especially if you call yourself a Christian, people watch you like a hawk. Usually because they're watching you to see when you trip up and, you know, 
lose the faith or, or whatever, but someone's always watching you. The reality is that people need to see faith in action. They need to know that you're not a mindless robot when it comes to your religion. And that when you are cut, you do bleed. They need to see that you have a very real faith that feels the cut, sees the bleeding, and runs to the great physician. They need to see and hear you calling out in the middle of the night, in the midst of your pain, singing hymns of praise to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Listen, faith comes by hearing. Paul says that in Romans chapter 10. No one will come to faith in Christ seeing you live out your faith alone. That is a fact. We do need to preach the gospel. The gospel involves words and truth. And yet we also know that faith without works is dead, as James says. The word of the gospel is born on the lips of those who do not have perfect, sinless, or trialless lives. We experience pain just like everyone else. Others should know that, not because we're complaining about it, but because we're trusting the Lord in spite of it. Will you, believer, see that your suffering is not just for you, but that God is able to use it for his purposes of advancing the gospel? Will you trust that that is true? Will you trust that God can use your pain to be an encouragement to others and that you can even find joy in that? Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. There he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you hear that? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our affliction in any affliction that we encounter, so that we may be able to comfort those who go through any affliction. That's why he comforts us. That's why he gives grace to us in the midst of our difficulty, so that we can then turn that over to someone else and be an encouragement and a comfort to them. Can you rejoice knowing that your pain may be the way that someone comes to faith in Jesus? Or if they're a believer already, that they draw closer to Jesus as a result of seeing how you endure affliction. Again, this text in 2 Corinthians, just like Paul does in Philippians, assumes that we're sharing our lives with others. Not withdrawing into ourselves when things get tough, but that we're continuing to reach out. We're continuing to share life with each other, both the joys and the sorrows. And we're certainly continuing to share the comfort that we receive from God as a result. This is the joy of Johnny Erickson Tata sharing her story of being paralyzed and happy. This is the story of Paul rejoicing in Christ in spite of being in prison. This is the story of Jesus Christ himself, where it says in scripture, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Perhaps one of the best examples that I have of this personally in my life of someone who endured suffering faithfully, whose example was an encouragement to my life, was a dear brother and sister with whom we formerly attended church. And I've told them this. 
They were not a Paul the Apostle or Johnny Erickson Tata. They were not in ministry. They were not seminary trained, not significantly involved in any particular ministry. They were simply faithful attenders, having professed faith in Christ and wanting to grow and learn. They were expecting a child at the same time that we were, but just a matter of weeks before the due date, both of our children, they received word that they'd lost their dear little one. The wife of the other couple had visited with us, I think just a matter of days before they found out. It was devastating to them, devastating to our church, utterly mind-blowing to us as we kind of tracked along with them in the progress of their little one. And yet in the midst of all of this, the Lord preserved their faith. I don't know how in the world they did it. Humanly speaking, I have no idea. I don't know if I would have been able to do it. All I know is that the Lord preserved their faith. They walked away from that situation still giving honor to the Lord Jesus, still holding firm to their faith. In the midst of that painful situation, And I walked away from that situation more convinced in my heart, more convinced than any other seminary class that I've taken, any sermon I've ever studied for or preached, more convinced that if the Lord could so preserve their faith, then he could keep me through anything. That's how it works in the body of Christ. That's how the Lord works. That's why he works the way that he does. Well, again, as we look at this section, we see Paul finding joy in the midst of his suffering. For Paul, he found joy considering those two things. He considered how his suffering, the difficult circumstances that he found himself in, would help him to further the gospel. He rejoiced in the opportunity to share the gospel with those closest to him. And he also rejoiced that others shared the gospel ministry, shared the gospel having been inspired by his story. In the next section, we'll see that Paul also found a way to rejoice by considering the focus of the gospel, namely Jesus Christ himself. We'll get to that portion of uh, chapter 1 next week. Why don't you pray with me now? Our Father and our God, we do thank you again for this day. We thank you for your word, again, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. We thank you for the gospel and for the blessing that it is to be able to share the gospel with others. We thank you for the grace that you show us in the midst of our affliction in times of difficulty and sadness, both to be able to continue to share gospel truth with others, but also to inspire one another to press on, to move forward, to endure in spite of affliction and difficulty. Father, we pray that you make these things true of us, that you'd help us to continue to rejoice in you in spite of difficult times. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to do that for one another and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.